the brilliant theologian Jonathan Edwards asked the question, why in the garden did the Father allow Jesus to see this horrific vision before the cross? If anything, Jonathan Edwards says, wasn't that a little dangerous? So reflect on how you would tell Mr. Edwards the right answer. Was it wrong? Was it weird? Was it too dangerous for God to do this to Jesus? How would you answer? Because if we're a bit honest, it seems unwise. Why not wait till closer to the cross or after the cross to reveal or whatever you want to do, however you want to say it? Because the temptation could have been so strong that I guess there could have been temptation to ditch the cross. Well, Edward tells us, why did God show Jesus, the horrific vision. Edward says, it was so that we, you and I, could see Jesus go to the cross. Why? Voluntarily, knowing full well what he was about to experience, so that his love for us would be put on display even more. I start with this for our hearts and our thoughts as we go over what we're about to go over, because tonight will be graphic. Any children here, you've been warned. Tonight will be hard. Tonight will be uncomfortable, but it will be beautiful, and it will be right, and it will bring our hearts apart at the seams so that Sunday they come back most fully. So without any further ado, we are going to, let me just tell you what we're going to do tonight. We are going to walk through John chapter 19 as slow as possible, word for word. I might skip something here and there, but word for word for the most part. Stopping small moments here and there for for a moment of commentary. This is the crucifixion chapter, so no gimmicks, no sexy illustrations, no more theologian quotes. Tonight is John 19 in its purest form. That's it. So tonight is very raw. Don't even call this a sermon. This is not a sermon, okay? Everybody cool with me? That's all we're doing. Everybody happy with that? You still happy you came? You don't care. Here we go. John 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns, and they put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. Remember that the crown of thorns placed upon Jesus' brow are thorns most commonly known as bramble as bramble. These are not lengthy as maybe some of you have seen in pictures or other books or whatever it could be. These are not long thorns. No, 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 no. These are more like fish hooks. These are fish hook thorns. And they were very common in the days of Palestine then. So they would have dug in quite differently than these really long nails of sorts. And all of this is done as mockery because he declared himself to be king of the Jews. And if we've learned anything from Game of Thrones, it's that mockery of a king gets your head put on a spike. And yet, verse 3, And they came to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. To believe Jesus, to believe the gospel or the Bible, is to believe he is your and my king period. And this should get our attention because most of us reading this have never lived under the rule of a king. We are not familiar with this idea, this notion. One person having total rule over everything in society is difficult enough, but Jesus does not stop there. 
The mocked king allows his authority to be mocked in order to allow his authority to be welcomed in our life. So, not just a societal king reign and rule, but a personal ruling of our own lives. So we struggle enough thinking a king in charge of the country. Jesus says, a king in charge of you. King in charge of your heart. Verse 4. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to him, Behold the man. Behold the man. What unique contrasted words from when God said at Christ's baptism, behold my son. This is unique because this is backwards air here. This is backwards. They're wrong because they believe. Let me explain this. this they think this is, how do I explain it? They're thinking that this is the man who is calling himself the son of God. Behold the man. Again, they're wrong because this is the son of God who has made himself a man. Behold my son. Verse 6. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. Just a small moment of, of history, if you will, just to make this hopefully flourish even more in our minds and hearts. But crucifixion was invented by the Persians 500 years before the death of Jesus Christ. But it was perfected by the Romans in the days of Jesus. And it continued to be perfected, and it continued to be used by the Romans until they stopped, or this emperor stopped at Constantine in probably 300 AD. Friends, hear me ever so closely. This was such a horrific, horrific, horrific mode of execution that Romans themselves wouldn't even do this to their own citizens. It's not even worthy of their own citizens. This was reserved for foreigners and those guilty of high treason of the most heinous of crimes. Crucifixion was the most, crucifixion was the most barbarous, shameful, humiliating, unnoble, painful way to die ever. Ever. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus called it the most wretched of deaths. So what God's people are asking for isn't, well, just get rid of them. Put them in jail. What they wanted to see this mock king, they wanted to see him pulverized through humiliation. Pulverize him. These are shouts of hatred and sin and despair. They are filled with black hate. They are quite upset. Their throats must have been burning from the guttural screams. So verse 7. The Jews answered him, we have a law and according to that law, he ought to die because he had made himself the son of God. Backwards. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah 53. I'll read it very briefly where it says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that is before its shears, is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Verse 10. So Pilate said to him, 
you will not speak to me? You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have the authority to release you and the authority to crucify you? And here it is. And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. This is probably referring to Caiaphas who gave Jesus over to Pilate. Verse 12. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Verse 13. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down in the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in an Aramaic Gabbatha. So this would have been a, a place kind of like this. It would have been a raised, elevated place made of stone, much like a throne room, where decisions are made. And then here it is, verse 14. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. So it's elevating. Things are getting more intense. Friends, this shows us the stark irony of the entire situation. John wants us to remember that this was the day of the Passover. We've talked about that a few times the last couple of weeks. That this was the exact time that lambs were being slaughtered in Jerusalem. I mean, this time is divine. And in the book of Revelation, we are introduced to the striking image of a lamb, a slaughtered lamb of this idea on a throne. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world is our king, so he is both lion and lamb. And the image of a lion's authority and a lamb's meekness, the image of a bleeding lamb upon the strength of a powerful throne is what we should have. That is the image that we see upon the cross. Behold your king. My point is that this is the exact moment that Jesus redefines power and authority. This moment. Verse 15. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Take him. Pilate is spineless. Take him. Crucifixion was such a newfound horror that it was indescribable. It was literally indescribable, so much so that society had to literally invent a new word to describe it. Anybody know what that new word was? You can talk on Friday night here. Anybody know? Excruciating. That word was not invented until the crucifixion was invented. They said, we don't know how to describe it. It's excruciating, which means from the cross. So those who were crucified died in excruciating death, and pay close attention to this, by asphyxiation. Asphyxiation. When someone is crucified, their body is slouching so much that the air is exhaled from their lungs, they struggle to breathe. So it's, <gasps> it's literally when you see a drowning man's head come above the water and go back under, come above the water and come back under. And the result is that they will push themselves up on the nailed feet that they have to inhale. They're pushing against the grain of the wood. 
thereby extending their life. So they would pass in and out of consciousness. It would happen all the time, passing in and out. But, and it was widely debated, but some archaeologists say that there's enough evidence to believe that in an effort to extend their pain, they would nail the genitalia to the cross to ensure that he did not slide off. Why explain this graphic detail? To show you, to show us the great lengths that they went to, the Romans went to in order to ensure that their victims would suffer as long as the body could possibly allow them to endure. So if they see you about to die, they go, no, 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 fix it. He is not done being tortured. To make sure that dehydration, blood loss, shock, and pain would be slow. And again, what we hear through all of this is, behold your king. For what it's worth, very rarely were women crucified. On the rare occasion that she would have been, generally speaking, they would, they would turn her around. So she would be facing the cross because people could not see a woman in that capacity. The agony of her face would have been too much to bear. Not so with men. Not so with Jesus. Actually, more often than not, what they would do is they would make sure that these people on a cross would be eye level so that they could go by and they could stare into your window of the soul kind of a thing, causing dishonor and disregard. They wanted to look in the face of a killer. Verse 17. And he went out bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him. And with him, two others, and on other side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription, put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription to the place where Jesus was crucified near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather write that the man said, I am king of the Jews. Verse 23 now, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus. So at this point, get this. Jesus the carpenter had nails driven through the most sensitive nerve centers on his body, his hands and his feet. His body would have lurched involuntarily. He would have been in complete shock, physically excruciating, and it's unparalleled pain. Unparalleled. He would have been nearly naked, if not fully naked, stripped, dishonored, and showered in spit and his own blood. The cross was then dropped violently in its post where the king would have dangled by its own skin, by his own skin. Verse 23. They took his garments and divided into four parts. One part for each of his soldiers, also his tunic, but the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who it shall be. This was to fulfill scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. 
So the soldiers did these things, in verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus. Stop there. Just take a moment, if we could, and just remember this was not done in some backyard alley. This was not done in private. This was in extremely public places. This is the equivalent of crucifying somebody at the grove by the fountain. That's what it would have been like. It's that public. And the worst kind of people would gather around us if this was some kind of theatrical, as if Jesus was the elephant man in a freak show. So there are people everywhere, just like at the grove, yet there are clearly some faces missing. His disciples have completely abandoned him. Again, I can only imagine, I mean, I guess I experience it sometimes up here. There's moments of nervousness or, or fear or unknown or anxiety or whatever it is. You kind of look for those friendly faces. I'm often looking for my wife, even right now, and I just found her. You're looking for that face. I don't know where Jesus could have been looking. Please tell me Peter showed up. Please tell me they sh- And as people are everywhere, he finally, though, look at verse 25, but standing by the cross where his mother and where his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Cleopolis, who we're going to be talking about Sunday, and Mary Magdalene. So Jesus' gaze is finally fixed upon his mother. Ugh, Peter's not there. But Jesus' gaze is finally fixed upon his mother. Now, bear with me, but is there, if there's anybody you don't want at your own execution, is it not your mother? Right? She's undoubtedly emotionally devastated, distraught, destroyed to see her son in this state. Again, just imagine your own parents. Or how about this? Parents here, imagine watching this of your child. You would be wrecked. Wrecked. Verse 26. I love the tenderness of Jesus here. Just let it wash over you. He's so caring for the individual. He's so caring. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. It's not disrespectful. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciples took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. You can almost imagine him just trying to get the words up, right? A jar, verse 29, full of sour wine stood there so that they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. So again, he's up there and he asks through whisper and through heavy breath, I'm thirsty. And here is the final blow. The Roman soldiers who are on crucifix in detail have Apparently, some sort of barrel or jar nearby full of sour wine, so it's vinegar. Has anybody here done those shots of apple cider vinegar? It's putrid. It's disgusting. And they're standing by the cross because they know that all who are crucified are thirsty. They know that they will cry out for a drink. And in the last taste of death, they offer the cruelest joke of all, and they offer him vinegar which only increased the thirst. I don't know if they were stabbing it in his face. I don't know if it was going all over his face, if it reached his tongue. Friends, these Romans are masters of death. Roman soldiers were not just experts in killing the body. They knew how to kill your spirit. 
And so Jesus, whose ministry, if you remember, began with the miraculous first miracle of turning water into wine at a wedding, and he ends his life with a bitter taste of hatred at Golgotha. Christ, the one who offers all living water, is rejected as sip. On this Good Friday, we reflect on his thirst while also reflecting upon our own. Verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, and here it is, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. This is one of the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. And it's just three words. It is finished. The greatest words ever uttered by the greatest man that ever lived. This is complete. It's not, this is not the end. This is complete. It is finished. This is redemption complete. You can't add to it. You can't subtract from it. We don't need some priest or pastor to do anything with it. Now, so let's do a little role play here. Suppose you were, you're up here right now, and I'm where you're at, and you're in my spot. How would you start to handle to tackle these words? Just think about it. Where do you even begin? I feel as though I'm trying to catch the wind with my arms or the Pacific Ocean with a teacup. How would you deal with these words? How do you preach from this? It is finished. Its magnitude should stagger us. Its mystery should stagger us. Its majesty should stagger us. All reverence in these three words shook hell. Shook it. As far as the love of God goes for humanity, side note, as far as the love of God goes for humanity, there is nothing equal to it anywhere than the terminus of these three words. See, if we believe that, if you do believe that, then, in light of it, is it fair to say, collective church, that the greatest unkindness we could do to God is to doubt his love for us? Now, God doesn't love me care about me, think about me, want me, need me, or care for me, whatever you'd want to say, I don't know, enjoy me. If God didn't abandon you or me at this point when hell is literally squeezing the life out of him, when would he abandon you? Why would he abandon you? Verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, that meaning it's, it's a special time because it's Passover. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, as they might be taken away, meaning, speed this up, break their legs, make them stop breathing. Verse 32. Gosh, they, they're just treated like cattle, right? Verse 32. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. Verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Don't slip by this moment. God is dead. Do not slip by this moment. God died. 
Jesus died, the Son of God died. Verse 34. Now, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came up blood and water. There was so little blood left in his body that water was coming out with it. He who saw it was born witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you may also believe. For these things took place, that the scripture might be filled, not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Verse 38. This is very special. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Verse 39, Nicodemus, if you remember him from John 3, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen clothes with the spices as the burial customs of the Jews. Again, in contrast, personally, this makes me think of when the shepherds found Christ at the beginning of his life, at the beginning of the gospel, when he was wrapped in swaddling clothes. Verse 41. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Verse 42. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This is a heroic act of courage on Joseph and Nicodemus' part. Hence why Mark 15 says that they took courage and went to Pilate to make a request for Jesus' body. They were nervous. Why? Because to assault yourself with a convicted criminal was risky. And if you don't believe that, just remember the abandonment of all the other disciples, of Peter's denials. It was risky. They just watched what happens when you identify what happens with Jesus. So them doing this, these guys are heroes, okay? They're heroes. Simply, these men loved Jesus. This was a cheerless and thankless act as they put God in the very earth that he created. Imagine, therefore, the weight of grief that they felt. I mean, just put yourself in this position. We don't think about this too often, but carrying Jesus's lifeless body. I don't know if you've ever seen a dead body or if you looked in the eyes of a dead body, but it is eerie. It is unnatural to see lifeless eyes looking upon you. But when someone you love and respect, the grief is compounded. So, now in closing, I know it is hard to sort of understand how any of this could be the good news of Jesus Christ. How is any of this good news, right? Where's the good news in blood or nudity or spit or thorns or spikes? Here it is. Here's the good news. It's for you. All of this was for you and all of this was for me. Think about it. What would Jesus have after the cross that he didn't have before? The approval of God, riches, the kingship of the universe, he had it. The one thing he had after the cross that he didn't already possess was you, and it was me. Religious people seek ways to hear the story of John 19 and go, okay, how do I pay God back? True disciples, true followers, 
true sons and daughters of God, receive it. You go, there's no way I could repay any of this. They receive it. So tonight, as you receive communion, it's an invitation in receiving his substitution, his sacrifice. What you're receiving is that he did this for you. Unlike the angry gods of Greek mythology or, or paganism who demanded a blood sacrifice or some kind of appeasement, our God reverses it and he diverts wrath from us to his own son. So rather than asking anything from us, he does something for us. Rather than giving us a, mand- a mandate of bloodshed, he comes and sheds his own. So communion is the rhythm of saying, I will never let myself forget. Communion is the rhythm of saying, I will never let myself forget that somehow, only through gospel power, the horrific cross was changed from a symbol of a torture device into a symbol of love. From threat into hope. And how did any of that happen? Jesus chose it. He volunteered it. He he made it happen. Making us forever believe that after Friday, we can never say again that God can't take ruins and make it into something praiseworthy. The cross removes that completely. If God can do this with a cross, torture device to a symbol of love, what can he do with a broken heart? What can he do with a lost job? What can he do with confusion? What can he do with a broken relationship? If God can do this with a cross from threat to hope, what can he do for fears? Financial concerns, identity confusion, cultural, political, and systemic frustrations. What can he do? So yes, friends, Friday, God is dead. Saturday, God lies in a stone coffin, but Sunday is coming. That's an amen moment. Sunday is coming. Let's worship Collective Church so loud right now that that entire freaking cemetery over there has woken up. Let's worship so loud that we wake the dead as the Spirit of God is going to do in mere days. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.